Amen. If you'd open up your Bibles this evening, we want to give you another message on the book of Job. Praise the Lord. The book of Job. Now, these teachings, for the next few weeks, we will say from the very onset that they're not geared to be preaching as much as laying out a little theologically some of the things pertaining to the book of Job and Job. We may get into a little preaching a little later on, but if we didn't want to go this route, we would have just preached on the deeper insights to trials. We pray that what we said last week and what we want to show you tonight about the book of Job, even though it will be a little different than what maybe we're accustomed to, will be a blessing and give us some encouragement and some understanding pertaining to Job. The theme of the book is the third thing that we dealt with, and again, this is very important to understand. The theme of the book is this. It raises a question. A problem arises, you see. And this book raises that problem, and then it answers that problem, and that problem is summed up by the question, why do the righteous suffer? Of all the conservative books that I've read in the book of Job, everyone agrees on this, that the book, the main theme of the book is the question, why do the righteous suffer? Now turn to Proverbs 11, and we'll try to give you a little bit of brief background on what we've already said, using different passages of the word, to point out how that this problem is brought up and how it is dealt with. In Proverbs chapter 11, you see the Bible teaches from Genesis to Revelation the principle of sowing and reaping, that if a man sows, so shall he reap. Galatians 6, 7 and 8. Be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever man sows, that shall he also reap. And so from cover to cover you find where the Bible speaks of how that the righteous are blessed and the wicked are cursed. All the way throughout the Bible. And yet, in the case of Job, you see, it didn't happen that way. And that's very important that you understand, especially we're going to deal tonight with some more things, because if you're following after what a lot of men put in their books concerning trials or Job, you'll miss it when it comes to Job, because a lot of people think that because Job got all this affliction because he feared. Well, he feared God, but he didn't fear the devil. And I'll explain what that verse of Scripture means tonight, what I believe it means, but you'll miss the whole point. And you'll miss uh, a very important part of why God wants you to understand the book of Job. Well, while the Bible teaches the law of sowing and reaping from beginning to end, here in Proverbs 11 is one place that, again, lays out this teaching. We can see it in the world as well as in the Word. You can see it in the, the man, even the unregenerates. Take two unregenerates. One sows alcoholism to his, alcohol to his body, the other not then one will reap the consequences of that alcohol compared to the other. Sickness and disease, uh, different sicknesses and disease related to alcohol or other things. America is millions of dollars in debt because of the welfare system. There are unregenerates that will work their full-hearted head off and they reap what they sow. They may have the nice homes and nice cars and they may have a lot of the things that the person living on welfare doesn't have, but the person living on welfare, if that person doesn't want to work, well, the principle is in the Bible. If man doesn't work, he won't eat. Or the principle in the, in the Proverbs of the sloth. 
You know, he talks about how that he went by a field one day, looked out and saw the field of the sloth, and it was all gathered up with weeds and thorns and thistles. And so shall he reap. You can't plant a garden and sow seeds without getting out there to hoe in it. Or come fall of the year, you'll just stand out there and reap nothing but weed seeds. It's just the law of sowing and reaping. You know, you can say, well, I'm just going to claim by faith I won't have any weeds. You only do that the first year. Proverbs chapter 11. Then you begin to realize that there are such things in the Bible. Now, I, I don't know why, but I sense in my spirit somebody questioned that. Well, before you read Proverbs 11, I know it. Somebody out there just said, that's not faith. I, I'm going to curse my weeds. Go ahead and curse them. Curse them while you're hoeing them, though. Because the principle is here in Proverbs 24, verse 30. I went by the field of the slothful and by the vineyard of the man void of understanding. And lo, it was all grown over with thorns, and nettles had covered the face thereof, and the stone wall thereof was broken down. <laughs> you know, everything was a shamble. And then I saw and considered it well. I looked upon it and received instruction. Yet a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. And so shall thy poverty come as one that travaileth, traveleth, and thy one is an armed man. Well, there's the principle, friends. If you're going to sow a garden, you've got to get out and... Ho, ho, ho in it. Keep the weeds down. Well, Proverbs chapter 11. You see, it's just the law of sowing and reaping. We talked last week about a lot of things. Children and teeth and everything else. So in Proverbs 11:17, note with me through these several passages, the different, how that it, this lays it out clear. The righteous are blessed, the wicked are cursed. Deuteronomy 28. Verse 17. The merciful man, I'm in Proverbs 11, doeth not... The merciful man doeth good to his own soul, but he that is cruel troubleth his own flesh. The wicked worketh a deceitful work, but to him that soweth righteousness shall be a sure reward. As righteousness tendeth to life, so he that pursueth evil pursueth it to his own death. They that are of a froward heart are an abomination to the Lord, but such as are upright in their way are his delight. Though hand join in hand, the wicked shall not be unpunished, but the seed of the righteous shall be delivered. You see, every verse lays out the law of sowing and reaping. If you sow to righteousness, if you yield to the Holy Spirit and so on, you'll find that you'll be reaping the benefits of the, of the righteous in the Bible. But if you sow to the flesh, that includes Christians tonight. You'll just reap the consequences. It isn't enough to just confess faith. Faith in the Old Testament is being faithful to God. That's what we're dealing with is the book of Job in the Old Testament. So, you can see that the Bible lays out in many places, we looked at others last week, the law of sowing and reaping, you can see it in operation every day of your life in the world. But you see, in the case of Job, it was just the opposite. He was a model man. He was perfect. He was upright. We're not going to confess tonight or tell you that he was flawless. We'll deal with that question a little later on. But Job walked perfect and upright and eschewed evil. God told him that he did. God tells us that he was a man that eschewed evil. You know what that means? It means that he hated sin. The way to overcome sin and walk in victory is to hate sin. To hate it. Just to hate to go any other way than what the Lord wants. If you don't hate sin, then you'll continue in it. But you see... Job was a perfect man. He eschewed evil. And in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 11, 
Here we read of those that eschew evil, that something will happen to them. 1 Peter 3, verse 10. He that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking guile. And let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? You see, the principle is eschew evil, walk in faith, and you'll be blessed. But it didn't happen that way with Job. He eschewed evil. He was perfect. He was upright. He was a model man. He was a man that was, well, probably not as old as some of his friends, as we'll see. But he probably was at least 60, maybe 70 years old. And yet was placed in high esteem. How that people would, when he came into their presence, they'd shut their mouths. They'd stand up, even the older ones, which is, in those days, it was always the younger that stood up for the older, but the older would stand up for the younger. He was so highly respected. Such a model righteous man. But then one day, everything was totally gone. It was all wiped out. All of his wealth. He was struck with sore boils from head to toe with a loathsome disease and went through great trial and adversity for several months. And his three friends came along and you see, they kept trying to push this principle upon Job for a couple of reasons as we'll see tonight. Saying, look Job, the curse causeless shall not come. You've got the curse. There has to be a cause. You must have sinned somewhere. And all the way throughout the book, Job says, no, I didn't. That's not what's going on. I believe the same thing you did, that as a man sows, so shall he reap. But that's not the reason here. I don't know what's going on, but I know that my Redeemer liveth. I know I shall be justified. Statements like that kept coming out, but he had no idea what was going on. He didn't have chapters 1 and 2. But you see, that is the problem that is raised. Well, if the righteous are blessed through the principle of the law of sowing and reaping, then why do the righteous suffer? Not why do the sinner, that's obvious. But why do the righteous, why do the perfect, why do the upright, why do those that have done no wrong? And while there are many things we're going to show you applied uh, to the book of Job as answers to why we go through trials, you have to keep this one theme in mind that you could never profess to having a Job's trial unless you're innocent and you've been walking faithfully with the Lord. Now, we'll deal with other things, of course, but I've always encouraged people that you don't go around telling people, well, it's like a trial with Job. God's just doing it because he uh, thinks of me as one that's walking in victory and, and I'm upright and he's just using me as a challenge to the devil that I won't lose my faith and so on. You can't just go around and say, well, it's a trial of my faith if it's not, if you're living in sin. But Job wasn't, is the whole point. So therefore, he continued to uphold his, his righteousness and say, no, I'm righteous. The problem, why do the righteous suffer? Well, there are a lot, of, a lot of reasons why. I don't want to get into that question tonight. I want to continue to lay some more foundation. So I want you to turn with me to the book of Job. Again, you see, if we were not teaching on the book of Job, if we were just te- teaching on the deeper meanings of trials, we could just jump right into that. Since we're teaching on the book, Then we're going to spend a little time tonight and examine this person that is brought out whose name is Job. I'd like to raise several things, deal with several things pertaining to 
who Job is and so on. To give you a little insight and a little history as to Job, because there are a lot of liberals today that believe that Job is a fictitious person. But I believe the Bible shows us who Job is and where Uz was, shows us what time period he was living in, and then we'll deal a lot with the very character of Job, which is essential for you to understand to understand the theme of the book. We'll deal with the question of, what, of whether or not Job feared and that brought his calamities on him and so on. You have to understand that. Otherwise, when you've done nothing wrong, you've been so faithful in prayer and faithful in studying the Word and You've just been, it just seems like you've really got that peace and joy and victory because you know you've been overcoming, and then all of a sudden, pow, hedge comes down and something great happens. You were just experiencing the blessings of God, and everything was going so fine, and you were just every morning claiming Psalm 91 and just expecting the protection of that hedge. And then all of a sudden, your car gets totally, completely demolished and wiped out. And you could say to yourself, well, I know if I hadn't been praying like ought or studying my word as ought or if I'd been allowing this or that sin to, in my mind too much, you know, God could chase him. But when you've done nothing wrong and everything reverses, that's when you've got to understand, okay, here's now where we apply Job. Well, let's look at Job. I want to deal tonight with the man, Job. Give you some things about the person, Job. First of all, I want to deal with the man Job and who he was. Now, the liberals don't believe that Job was a literal person. They believe that he was a, an individual that was just, uh, well, a, a character that was just given to show us the principle of evil in the world and so on. But they don't believe he was a literal person. I believe that Job was a literal person so for several reasons. Now, the name Job... Is literally not Job. Let's see if I can give you a little Hebrew tonight. I think we've got some here that are studying Hebrew. Job is not his name. His name is Eov. Now I know I turned that around because I want to use this to write on. But for those that may know a little Hebrew, here's what Eov looks like in the in the Hebrew. Those that don't know any Hebrew, it is E. Y-O-V. That's it. Eov. You say, how do you get Job out of that? Well, that's just what everybody has tacked on it is Job. It literally, by the way, this is like that. Not Eov. Eov is his name. I guess if we said Eov tonight, you'd know who we were talking about when we said Eov. But that's his name. It's not Job, it's Eov. We'll continue to call him Job, though, so that everybody knows what we're talking about. But the way, the reason the liberals do not believe that this individual was a literal person partly is because the name Eov means hated. So they try to play big on the idea that, well, you see, he's just a figure of hatred and so on. But we believe that he's a true individual. He was a righteous man that lived during a period of time. And he lived in Uz, wherever Uz was. We'll give you some ideas where Uz was. But we believe that Job was a literal person. Why do we do that? Well, for several reasons. Number one is because the Bible speaks of Job in other places. Like Ezekiel, chapter 14, speaks of Job. He's not a figure of somebody's imagination that was, you know, dreamed up. The liberals, of course, are tearing down the Bible in many ways 
trying to say that it's not for today. And you know, in one sense, it's just a natural mind that can't comprehend the book of Job in itself. For example, the natural mind can't comprehend that there could actually be a God, you know, to them, God is all love, a God that could actually allow such a thing. You stop and think about that for a minute, friends. Here's a man that has been faithfully serving the Lord, and all of a sudden he loses everything. He's holding on to his life by a mere string. His friends hate him, and his own wife becomes one that he has to overcome. That just doesn't sound like the God of the Bible, because all we're ever told is that God is love, and on and on. And people don't even have to go through that. Why they raise questions like, even on, even babies that are not born. Why would a God of love allow such a thing? Let alone to one who's faithfully walking in all of the uh, integrity that he's and the light that he's been given to lose it all. So they, it's hard for them to understand that there would actually be a God like this. So they don't believe the book. They don't believe that in such a thing as Satan. So when it comes to a literal devil, they take the D off of it. Say, well, it's just the principle of evil. Not literally the devil. And it's hard for them to comprehend that an actual, literal man could actually endure the things that he went through and never curse, never swear. Because <laughs> the natural man, every time something goes wrong, his basement floods and freezer gets flooded, the first thing he does is get down in the basement and go, Rrr. I won't say anything because delivered from that. But you know what I'm saying. First thing they do is they use God's name, but they use it to curse. And they can't imagine that somebody would go through all this type of trial and fall down on his face and worship God. Bless God. That's just the opposite to the natural man's thinking. Now, that shouldn't be hard with us that have got the baptism in the Holy Spirit. But we believe that Job is a true person. Let me give you a couple reasons why. Number one, Job is used throughout the Bible in different places, like here in Job 14, verse 14. This is where Israel has been living in sin. And so the prophet here, Ezekiel, prophesying to Israel about their wickedness and sin, he says, verse 12, The word of the Lord came again unto me, saying, Son of man, when the land sinneth against me by trespassing grievously, then will I stretch out mine hand upon it, and will break the staff of bread thereof, and will send famine upon it, and will cut off man and beast. Though these three men... Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it. They should deliver but their own souls by their righteousness, saith the Lord. Now I know they you don't even believe in Noah. He's a fictitious character too, they say. And the actual idea that somebody could actually get put in a lion's den and get delivered out of it, again, doesn't line up with a natural man. But to us, if you're going to believe in Noah and Daniel, why not Job? He is a literal individual. Or James chapter 5, we're told that Job is an example to us of endurance, not patience, as it says in the King James, because if you've read through the book, you've already wondered, how's that faith, all those complaints that are being made and those negative confessions and statements? Well, Job wasn't the most patient individual, but he did endure. That's what counts. That's the type of trial that he had. James 5.11 Behold, we count them blessed which endure. You've heard of the endurance of Job? And have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very merciful and of, or pitiful and of tender mercy. So Job is brought out there. James and Ezekiel would not speak of a man that was fictitious. Job was a literal person. 
The reason, again, the liberals don't believe that Job's a literal person is they'll raise questions like, where did you ever find where anybody was named Job? Well, again, throughout history, there have been different times where men have been named Job. It's not the most common name. It's not a name like Bill or Tom or Jim or Dave or Mike. Those are pretty well common names. It'd be more like Hobart. Very few people are named Hobart or Bud. Not to pick on you, brother. Or Dolan. You don't hear many people named Dolan. But that doesn't mean that just because there aren't common names that they don't exist. Well, Job was used throughout history. 14th century, there was a prince of of uh, Peran that was named Job. And in the 19th century B.C., there was a prince from Damascus that was named Job. The name Job is is a name that's not popular, but still it was used. Then there are other reasons. Jewish tradition says that Job is the man over in Genesis chapter 36 and verse 33, and his name, this man was a king of Edom, and this man's name was Jobab. Jobab. Again, this is just a lengthened form of the name Job. So this is possible. This is just Jewish tradition, though. Genesis 36. I'm not saying that it is or isn't. We're just saying tonight that this is what the Jews believe. Verse 31. And there are the kings that reigned in the land of Edom. Before thee reigned any king over the children of Israel. And Bela, the son of Beor, reigned in Edom. And the name of his city was Dinahabah. And Bela died, and Jobab, the son of Zerah, of Bozrah, reigned in his steed. Well, there the word Jobab, the Jews believe that is the Job that's talked about in Job. And although whether or not this is a true statement Job makes, in Job 29, we read this last time, he said where he dwelt as a king. Now he's using it kind of as a figure of speech in Job 29, but if it's to be taken literally that he was as a king, then maybe that's what he was, was the king of Edom. The only problem I have with that is that Edom isn't east of Palestine, and yet it's possible this still could be true because they could be using east as a figure to speak of how that it, it was just saying that he was a non-Jew. We know he wasn't a Jew or an Israelite. He wasn't from Palestine. But the Jews believe that he was from Edom. Verse 25 says, I chose out their way, of Job 29, and sat chief and dwelt as a king in the army as one that comforteth the mourners. So it's possible. But nonetheless, even the Jews believe that Job was a literal person. They don't believe that he was a figure of speech. And God gave the Old Testament unto them. They believed he was a literal person. So we believe that Job, first of all, is a literal person. Now, where did Job live? Well, there are many views on where he lived. Let me put a map on for you and give you some idea of what, where we believe maybe Job lived. There are several views. We're just going to look at a few to give you an idea of where Job lived. The first one, of course, is Jewish tradition. And they believe that Job lived in Edom. Now, this map isn't as big as what I would like, but it'll give you an idea. Edom is south of Palestine. So here's Palestine. Edom would be right in this area right in here. Now, they believe that Job came from Edom 
because Eliphaz, one of those friends of his, was called, he was Eliphaz the Temanite. And Teman is a city in Edom. So they believe on the basis of that, you see, that um, Eliphaz came from there, so that meant Job was around there. But it's possible Job lived somewhere else and Eliphaz did live there. And when Eliphaz came to visit him, he just came from that place. Now another view is that Job lived near Damascus. Now Damascus is, let's see, it's on this map. It's right here on this map. That would be east of Palestine. Keep in mind this is east. And they base this on the, on the idea that it's over in Genesis chapter 22. So if you turn over there, I'd like to show you what they, where they get this idea from. You see, they believe that Abraham had a nephew whose name was Nabal, I believe. Nahor. Genesis chapter 22. And Nahor had a son, and his name was Uz. And you know how they would often name cities after people. Well, they believed then that Uz was named after the son of Nahor, who was the brother of Abraham. And if that's true, then that also lines up with another individual who came from Buzz, because Uz and Buzz were brothers. Well, amen. We'll see. No, I'm not trying to be funny. I'm serious. Genesis chapter 22 and verse 20. We were going to skip all this, but I thought... Since it went to all the bother of studying it, laying it out, I thought it might interest you tonight. Job chapter 22. It does help sometimes to know where these individuals could have come from. Job 22.20. This, of course, is Abraham. Wait a minute. I'm one first ahead of myself. Genesis 11. You can hold your finger in Genesis 22. Genesis chapter 11 and verse 26 shows us that Nahor was a brother of Abraham. And I forget whether this passage says that he had a son named Uz or not. Actually, King James is Huz, but it's not Huz, it's Uz. And he had a brother named Buzz. And literally, his name is Oots. <laughs> now, if you can handle that one, okay. Genesis chapter 11. Uh, let's see. Now, you have to remember, Nahor is the grandfather of Terah. Terah is the father of Abraham. So, verse 26 and Terah lived 70 years and beget Abram and Nahor. See, he just took the name after the grandfather. And Haran, three sons, Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Which, by the way, this is for extra. Haran is up in this area over in here. But Haran didn't live as long. Haran died before his father Terah in the land of his nativity in Ur, Ur of Chaldees. Now, Ur of Chaldees, this map isn't big enough. Here's your Euphrates River, if you can see it. If you'll permit me, it would kind of go like this. You know, the river comes in here. Ur of Chaldees would be over in this area. Babylonia, or Babylon, not Babylonia. Babylon would be over in here. That's where I believe Job was from over in this area. But anyways, we'll continue on. And Abram and Nahor took them wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarah, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. Now, turn with me then to Genesis 22. He talks again of the brother of Abram, or we know him as Abraham. And Genesis chapter 22 speaks of the sons of Nahor, and one of them was Huz. 
Genesis 22 and verse 20. It came to pass after these things that it was told Abraham, saying, Behold, Milcah, she hath also borne children unto thy brother Nahor. Huz, the firstborn, and Buzz, his brother, and Kemuel, the father of Amram. All right, now literally in the Hebrew, it's not Huz. Again, you have to know a little Hebrew. Now, where do we write it? Now, on the Hebrew word for Uz, translated Uz, is... Those of you taking Hebrew will know or know anything about Hebrew. This is Utz. Easiest way to pronounce it. Utz. It's a long U. That literally is what Uz was. And in the Hebrew, the word Huz is the same. You can go home and do your own study on this. Get out of concordance. You'll see what we're saying. That Huz is literally Utz. But the word here is the same in the Hebrew for Huz. Now, where is this used in the book of Job? Okay, turn then to Job chapter 32. You'll see here. Now, what we're saying is, you see, if you go to Job chapter 1, there was a man who dwelt in the land of Uz or in the land of Uts. You'd find then that that would be the land of Huz, as translated in Genesis 22. And over in Job chapter 32, we read of a man who was a Buzite. Now, you know what that means then? That means he came from the land of Buzz. That meant that Job was an, an Uzite or an Uzite. Anyways, Elihu, who was the fourth friend, this is Job 32, he was a Buzzite. That means he came from Buzz. Now, you see, what they did was, just like Judah, they would name towns and uh, areas and so on after individuals. So in Job chapter 32, verse 2, well, verse 1, So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then was kindled the wrath of Elihu, the son of Barkel, the Buzzite of the kindred of Ram. All right, so that means that these individuals, again, were coming from an area. Now, history shows it then that Nahor's son, Uts, he lived in the area around Damascus, which was over in here. So assuming that he lived in here, and if I remember right, the Buzzite came from around that area too, Elihu. That's the second view, is that Job came from around in this area. All right, that's possible. That is east of Palestine. The third view is that Job came from lower Mesopotamia around Babylon. Here is Ur of Chaldees over here. That's where Abraham came from. This is Babylon over here. And this is the Tigris. I'm abbreviating. This is the Euphrates. You can see that. This is the Euphrates, the Tigris, and so on, Mesopotamia, and this area here. This other view believes that Job came from this area in here, which again is possible, seeing that if Elihu the Buzzite was coming from this area, it's possible he lived in there. They base this on the fact that in Job chapter 1, we are told that two groups of people were ones that were used to rob him of his blessing. They were the Sabaeans, verse 15, the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them away. Yea, they have slain the sword with the edge of, slain thy servants with the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. And then verse 17, while he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, the Chaldeans made out three bands and fell upon the camels. Now, the significance is that the Chaldeans are the Babylonians, so they came from this area. And the Sabaeans 
are from the area of Syria. And let's see, I've got another map here that will give us an idea of where Syria is at. Which is where? Right here in that area of Damascus. So you see, even though Jewish tradition would say that Job came from down here in Edom, I tend to believe that maybe Job came from another area, which would be this area around the Tigris-Euphrates River over in Damascus. Somewhere in that area is where Uz was. Now, archaeologists have had various digs, and they believe that they have found Uz, and they have found Uz over in this area. But that's an archaeologist's find. We'd almost have to wait till we got over there and ask Job where Uz was. Because it is specific. It doesn't really say. But I do believe it is a literal place, and it did exist by different things that we've already laid out. So where did... Where was Uz, or where did Job come from? Well, Job, Job came from Uz, and Uz was, I believe, over here. If you want to stick to Edom, okay. There are other views, but they don't back it up with anything. So that's where we believe that Uz, or Job, was from. Now, what about the date of Job? How old is this book? How long ago did Job exist? Well, again, there are many views. There are those that believe that Job was around the time of the uh, prophets, because they don't believe that neither suffering, the righteous suffering, nor Satan was introduced till after the exile period, which is Babylonian exile, which is about 700 to 200 B.C. This again is your liberals. They don't believe that Satan, or the very idea, they don't believe in Satan, of course, came on the scene until 700 to 200 B.C. They don't believe that the righteous suffering, that principle, was laid out either till that period of time. But we don't hold to that view for several reasons. Number one, they will use different passages. There are only three places in the Old Testament where the word Satan is used. And these three places, one of them is in the book of Zechariah, chapter 3, verse 1. The other is in Second Chronicles, or First Chronicles, 21.1. Both of those are late books. Zechariah, of course, is a late book. That's after the Babylonian exile, or during it. And... First and Second Chronicles are the oldest two books in the Old Testament. We haven't really gotten into any, any deep studies on uh, the books of the Old Testament, so on someday maybe we will. But it is the oldest two books in the Old Testament. So the liberals say, well, since Satan is used in First Chronicles and Satan is used in the book of Zechariah, therefore when it's used in Job, Job must be a late book because Zechariah and First Chronicles are late books. But you see, that doesn't make any sense. That's the way they think. That's the, the mind that thinks the same way that they determine evolution. They will just take something and prove what they want to prove with it. You see, Job, or the concept of Satan coming in, would not be something that came in late if the book of Job was early. Because you could just say, in essence, well, no, it came in earlier than Zechariah and First Chronicles. It came in in the book of Job, and the book of Job was early. But because they say, and their premise is wrong, that because Zechariah and First Chronicles are late, and that's where Satan is brought out, therefore Satan is a late doctrine, therefore Job must be a late book. You all with me? They believe then that the book is late. We don't believe the book is late, for many reasons, as we'll show you in a minute. But you see, that's the same logic that goes with evolution. If you've ever traveled around to the, many of your state or federal parks, you notice that they believe in evolution, something terrible. 
when we were out in Grand Canyon, this came out. What they will do often with evolution is, if you look at rocks or valleys and mountains, they will take and pick out different layers of rock strata. And they'll say, all right, now this is the 10 billion year layer and the 8 billion year layer and the 5 billion year later and layer and on and on. So they'll start digging into all that. Whenever they come up with something, that whatever layer it's in, then they'll put that kind of date on it. But that's ridiculous because when the flood came, everything was tossed and turned up around and upside down. So you're going to find all kinds of stuff at all different levels. Plus, if you'd read a good book like the Genesis Flood, you'd find where they don't bring out some of the things that are found in riverbeds and so on. Like they found steam beds and Coke bottles way down here in the four, five, six thousand year level. So they don't bring stuff like that up. Evolution, I don't know how anybody could believe it. We are not ancestors of apes, friends. <laughs> Someday we'll get the privilege of teaching on evolution and laying out some of the ideas and their how that they are false. But you see, this is the way they think. They will take something and say, this is what it is, and then determine everything on the basis of that. That's what they've done with the book of Job. Job's early because, well, the concept of Satan is early. The concept of suffering is early. But it's not. The concept of Satan can be late if the book of Job's late, which we believe it is, and we'll show you why. And the concept of suffering, even if, well, even apart from Job, there are many places in the Old Testament that are far earlier books than First Chronicles or the period of Zechariah where suffering, the righteous suffered, took place. I'll just give you one. There are many. For example, all of Israel suffered on account of the sin of David. There's a principle, same way, that they were suffering on something that they didn't directly do, although I'm sure they were not perfect. There are others. Over in Genesis chapter 18, you read here about Abraham. And uh, Abraham raises the question. A few other places that we could think of offhand would have been, well, if I think about them, I'll mention them. Genesis 18. I guess Joseph would be one where he suffered on the part of his brother. That's way early. Moses was one that stood in the gap for Israel. Uh, in a sense, he suffered because of the sins of Israel. But here in Genesis chapter 18, we read concerning Abraham raising the question about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis chapter 18, verse 23. Verse 22, The men turned their faces from thence, and they went toward Sodom, and Abraham stood before the Lord. And Abraham drew near and said, Wilt thou also destroy the righteous with the wicked? You see, he's raising the question. Lord, I thought that the righteous were to be blessed, not forsaken. The principle very early is being raised. Why do the righteous suffer? That's the question that he's bringing out. Lord, will the righteous suffer with the wicked? They've done no wrong. So very early, the, the principle of suffering came in. But we believe that Job is a very early book. We're talking about maybe 2400 B.C., to about 1700 B.C. Maybe some of you didn't know the Bible went back that old. Well, it does. But it sure doesn't go back no 10, 20, 30, 40, 50,000 years B.C. We don't believe in the gap theory in this body, but we'll share on that a little bit later on. The gap theory is just a compromise to try to add a few years 
into the Bible when you don't need to add a few years into the Bible. But going back to the book of Job, let me give you some reasons why this is a very, very early book. One is, as you read through the book, you'll find different things coming out, which point to how it's early. First of all, over in uh, Job 42 and verse 16, we read where Job lived to be a very old man. You know, after this trial, God blessed him with many children, and he lived uh, 140 years after this trial. Well, he was no young boy when this trial came. Job 42.16 After this lived Job 140 years, and so his sons and sons, sons, even four generations. So Job died being old and full of age. He was probably maybe 200 years old. Which, after the flood, you find, of course, that, well, people lived for millenniums even before. After the flood, men lived during the patriarchal period, the Abraham's period, for example, they lived many hundreds of years or a few hundred years. Again, God multiplying population and so on. The second reason why this is a very early book, and you only find that in the patriarchal period, Job was a priest. Now here you'll have to think back on our studies in the book of Hebrew. Because we said in our studies on the book of Hebrews that God very specifically said after the Mosaic law was ushered in, that not everybody could be a priest. You had to be of the tribe of Levi. Remember the principle with Aaron's rod? That they were arguing over that, and so God showed them through Aaron's rod that it was just the tribe of, of Levi that was used as priests. And yet, during the patriarchal period, Abraham offered sacrifice, Isaac, Jacob, all these individuals offered sacrifice. They were like priests of their household. And there are charismatics that yet today believe that the man is the priest of his home. We're not the priest of our homes. We've got one priest. That's Jesus Christ. He's our high priest. We're not priests in the sense that, well, I guess we're all priests in the sense that we're called to minister to God, but we're not priests in the sense that they're thinking of. Job chapter 1, verse 5. And so it was when the days of their feasting were gone about that Job sent and sanctified them. He would offer up sacrifice, you see, for his children and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Now this did Job continually. Again, offering up sacrifice did not make an atonement for them, as we're told in the Mosaic period, but it sanctified them. It set them apart. You can find that. Throughout the book of Job, the name of God comes out, and God's name in the book of Job is El Shaddai. Again, that's significant, because Genesis 15, remember when... When God spoke to Abram, he said unto thee, Abram, I am El Shaddai, the all-sufficient one, the almighty God. Well, after the Abrahamic period, God didn't refer to himself as El Shaddai anymore. He, uh, he used other names. But El Shaddai is a patriarchal name of God. Now, there can be an exception to that. But as a general rule, El Shaddai was a very early name. And that's the only name that's used in the book of Job when it comes to the Lord or comes to God. It's used all the way throughout the book. Job's riches are spoken of as herds and flocks and animals. Again, that's a very early concept pertaining to riches and money. So many things point to the fact that this is a very early book. In Job chapter 19, the writing that was in Job's day, I don't know how many of you know this, but they didn't have papers, nor did they even have scrolls. But what they did was they rode on lead plates and if 
something was to be written that was uh, quite long, they inscribed it in rocks. And Job speaks of this. Job chapter 19. This is very early writing. When we were out west, we saw some Indian writings on rocks. And of course, they want to say millions of years old and all that stuff. It's not near that old, but a few thousand years ago, well, it'd be about 4,000 years ago now, that's the way that they wrote if they had something long. If you've got a book at home like Unger's Bible Handbook, it might pay you. I've got some others uh, that show a lot of pictures of the way that they wrote on rocks and so on and so forth. Job speaks of this. Job 19, verse 23. Oh, that my words were now written. Oh, that they were printed in a book. Literally, the Hebrew is that they were recorded in writing, that they were graven with an iron pen. They would use an iron pen to inscribe in the lead their writings. And lead in the rock forever, they would inscribe it in a rock. It's just a type of writing that they used. They would engrave things in rocks. So you see, by all these little hints and things, you can see that the book is very early. There's never any mention of anything like the Mosaic period, the kingship, sacrifice in the sense of mosaic sacrifice for atonement the priesthood none of that the job is a very very old book many believe and i agree that it's probably the oldest book in the old testament as far as who wrote it well we believe job wrote it but it's possible that moses wrote the first two chapters job didn't know what all that was about but the character of job is what i want to deal with the rest of the message and this is quite significant the character of Job, we are told over in Job chapter 1, is that he was a perfect and upright man, one that feared God and wanted one that eschewed evil. Now that's not anything new, but you must understand the character of Job to understand the nature of the book. There are other things brought out, but this is very important. Job chapter 1, there was a man in the land of Uz or Uth, whose name was Job or Job. We'll go back to reading King James. And that man was perfect and upright and one that feared God and one that eschewed evil. Now the Bible says, Matthew 5.48, that we're called to be perfect. Here's the man that was called perfect. You know, people say, well, nobody can be perfect. Who can be perfect? Here's the man that was perfect. And then other arguments will be raised. Well, Job wasn't perfect because you can find fault with Job. Well, it's true. Job had some faults. He even said he did. But you can find faults in a lot of the men that God called perfect. Abraham was perfect and upright. And yet through fear, he allowed his wife to be turned over to a pagan king. Twice that happened. Through fear. So I wouldn't say that he was flawless, but God said he was perfect. Noah got drunk. Yet the Bible says he was perfect. Now think about that. Now, while, now we are not saying that it's alright for you to turn your wife over to somebody else or get drunk. So don't misinterpret what we're saying and still be perfect. There's a principle here. In Job, you find in many places, we won't read all these, but like in Job chapter 7 and verse 20, well, Job admitted himself that he wasn't perfect. Now, God said he was. But the perfection in the Bible is not sinless perfection. And again, we're not implying by that that we should not strive for sinless perfection. It doesn't mean that we can't sin. It just means that when the choices are there, we won't sin. God expects a lot more out of us with the Holy Spirit, with the light that we've got, than He expected out of Noah, Job, Moses, 
Abraham, does that kind of throw you back a little bit? I mean, the Old Testament ethics weren't near what they are in the New Testament, so that shouldn't be too hard. But for the light that they had, they were very faithful to God, and so he called them perfect and upright and righteous. They had that character. I'll just give you a few, like Job 7.20, where he himself admitted different places where he was not flawless as far as perfection goes. Verse 20, I have sinned. What shall I do, what shall I do unto thee, O thou preserver of men? Why hast thou set me as a mark against thee, so that I am a burden to myself? And why dost thou not pardon my transgression and take away mine iniquity? For now shall I sleep in the dust, and thou shalt be in the morning, but I shall not be. Or maybe a little better one would be over in Job chapter 9, verse 2. Job said, I know it is of a truth, but how, sh- how shall man be just with God? Verse 20, if I justify myself, mine own mouth shall condemn me. If I say I am perfect, it shall also prove me guilty. He never testified that he was innocent and perfect. God said that, and if God said that, then who are we to say that he wasn't? Job wasn't openly saying, yes, I'm a flawless, self-righteous, flawless individual. That'd be pride and self-righteousness coming out. But you see, the problem here that's raised is that people will say, well, Job sinned, and that's why he brought this calamity on himself. And, dear friends, it's true, there are books written on the subject, like in Job chapter 3 and verse 25, that Job feared. Verse 25, For the thing which I greatly feared has come upon me, and that which I was afraid of has come unto me. Well, now, while we know that fear will bring upon you all the curses of the law. We read that last Sunday, remember? Deuteronomy 28:30. all those things which thou hast feared shall come upon thee. While we know that fear will bring upon you the curse of the law, in the case of Job, it was not the fear that brought these things upon him. And if you don't understand that, you'll miss the whole point. Because if he feared, that's sin. And if he sinned, you're missing the point of the book. Why will the righteous suffer? He isn't righteous if he sinned. You're missing the theme. You're missing the point. Job was perfect and upright. God didn't say to Satan when he pointed him out, Look, Satan, have you ever considered Job? He's been fearing lately that he'll lose all his goods, so his hedge is down. Why don't you go get him? No, it didn't go that way. He was a perfect, upright man. God was holding up his, his integrity. Besides that, for Job to fear that he was going to lose it all, you have to understand that Job is the first one in the Bible that ever lost anything like this. He didn't know the righteous were to go through trials, that the righteous could lose anything. He didn't know that. He's a pioneer in the faith, friends. We know it now. And some of you could fear that God would allow a big trial to test your faith, losing a child, losing your home, your loved ones, your money, your wealth. But Job had no idea that that would ever befall the righteous. He had no concept of that. This is a brand new thing. He is the first individual that this has ever brought out to. So I believe that as far as the idea of Job fearing, some believe, and I tend to think that this possibly is an interpretation of it, that when he makes this statement, for that which I greatly feared has come upon me, some believe that his fear began after the first calamity, And after the first calamity, he feared that something more would happen, which it proceeded to do two, three, four, five times. But in essence, either way around it, the fear, him fearing, was not what brought upon him 
all the calamity. And I know books written today that will, well, they're preaching on how that we shouldn't fear, and then they use this as a testimony to say, you see, if you fear, you'll end up like Job. Well, you might, but that's not what the book's about. The question is, why do the righteous suffer? And you'll miss the whole theme of the book if you flub up the character of Job by thinking that he was anything but perfect. God said he was perfect. He was upright. Now, of all the virtues that can be shown to us about Job, I think there's one thing that is outstanding about the character of Job, and that was his faith. Now, stop and think for a moment. That can be a question that some of you might say, how on earth would you think the faith of Job is a virtue that should be exalted? Because I read in Job chapter 3, when Job was going through all those trials, that he started being quite negative and lamenting things that sure doesn't sound like faith. You know, Job 3, he said, we read this last time, he cursed the day that he was born. That doesn't sound like the faith message we know. He wished he was dead. That doesn't sound like the faith message we know. Other statements that he made. For example, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That doesn't sound like faith, saying that God is the one that stole all his goods. You know what we're saying? That doesn't sound like faith. And yet he is an utmost perfect example of faith. We just have to understand tonight that when it comes to faith, he didn't have the light that we've got. He didn't have the book of Job to look to. He didn't have James 1 to say, my brother encountered all joy. He didn't have Proverbs, the different passages in the Proverbs, which speak of being positive in our confessions and so on. Proverbs 18.21 and and Proverbs 6.2. He didn't have places like that to know that he should keep his tongue under control and not say anything like, I wish I were dead. Because that could bring the curse upon him. He didn't know anything like that. And yet, the faith of Job is very outstanding once you understand that the very trial that he went through centers around his character. Which if you tear down his character by saying that he was a sinner and he feared, you'll miss the point. You see, in Job chapter 1, his character here is brought out by God as one that is perfect and upright. And a challenge is brought on. There is a warfare that begins to take place in the heavenlies over Job between God and the devil. Because God says concerning Job, he's a perfect and upright man. Verse 8, the Lord said unto Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and upright man, one that fears God and one that hates evil? And Satan said to the Lord, Does Job fear God for naught? Hast thou not made a hedge about him and about his house and about all that he has on every side? Thou hast blessed the works of his hands and his substance is increased in the land. But put forth now thine hand and touch all that he has and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he has is in thy power. Only upon himself put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth to do it. And so we're told that here's a man that is greatly blessed of God. And he is, with family, material goods, and etc. And yet, God says when he points him out, there's a man that's perfect and upright in all of his ways. He didn't say that he was a sinner. He was perfect. The challenge here is pertaining to the character of Job, that Satan is saying, Job only serves you because it's in his best interest. Job only serves you because, after all, look at the blessings that he receives. 
He receives prosperity. He receives divine health. He receives protection and on and on. But you withhold his blessings and Job will take leave of you in his service. God is saying Job's love is only skin deep. He only serves you because it pays. He is accusing Job of being like those over in John chapter 6 without reading there that followed Jesus with the loaves and the fishes. Now you stop and think about this for a minute. That's what God said, no, Job loves me and I'll prove it. You can go ahead and take everything that he owns. And so therefore that was the test and Job passed the test. Think about that for a moment though before we go any farther. There's just a lot of people today that get blown away because, quote, something hasn't manifested quick enough or something would get taken away from them in the realm of a blessing. Dear friends, would search your hearts tonight. What if God required of us everything in his word and yet never gave us one single blessing other than maybe eternal life? What if God required of us the same diligent obedience in all areas and yet the only promise he gave us was eternal life, would you still be willing to serve him for just that? Would you still be willing to, Galatians 2.20, get on that cross and die out? Still be willing to practice non-resistance, not take people to court and sue them? Still be willing to endure the ridicule and laughter because maybe we are not like in a, the denominational system with Sunday schools and boards and committees and all that other? Still be willing to serve the Lord in all the ways that he speaks of apart from the faith message. Would you still serve the Lord knowing that it was not going to really benefit you as far as anything on this life? And you have to stop and ponder that for a minute. We're not trying to say that the Bible does say that. We know that God gives us the blessings, but that's his grace. And people that would fall away because a mere trial comes along and maybe something doesn't, quote, manifest quick enough or whatever, one needs to really search their heart to see whether or not they're following God for the blessings. Now that's what Satan said of Job. The only reason Job is serving you, the only reason Job is faithful to you is because it pays. But I'll prove that he's not as loyal as you think. Let me take all his goods and you'll find that he will curse you to his face. So the, the nature of the test that Job went through is one that's threefold. And in this threefold thing that happened. You can see the faith of Job coming forth to a greater and greater degree. The first is that he lost all of his wealth. Now, he was a very wealthy man. Verse 3, his substance also was 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 she-asses, a very great household sold it all, so that this man was the greatest of all the men in the east. And we're told that he had many children. He had 10 children. Now, think about this. Job was richly blessed. God had blessed the works of his hands. Try to apply this to yourself tonight if you can. That you've been walking with the Lord maybe ten years. And God has blessed your job. He has blessed your family. He has blessed you with health. And it seems like you just go day to day just really enjoying the blessings and the benefits of living righteously. And you're striving to do nothing wrong so that it would upset the righteous blessings that God has given and you wake up one morning and you find out that suddenly it's all been gone. You get a telephone call. Your job is no longer there. The place burnt down. You get another phone call. Your children are all dead. And all you've got left is your wife. But everything, everything's gone. Your home, your car, your belongings, 
your job, your children, everything's wiped out completely. All of it. That's a very difficult thing to go through. And in this, when all of this happened, it happened in one day. You know, that's like instant shock. For most people in the world, they could never handle that. I mean it. They never could. We've had some little itty-bitty itty dinky things that have been compared comparatively nickel-dime to what Job went through. And I've had to encourage myself when we were on vacation I shared this before, how that, you know, you're, you're driving along and you've got the peace that passes understanding. You know you've been faithful to the Lord. You've done this and you've done this and you've, you've done all the things that you know that God wanted you to do. So you're just on your way saying, praise God, this is going to be a blessed vacation, great weather, no trials, really be a blessing, been faithful to God. And all of a sudden, just like that, it seems like it's all wiped out for a season. Well, that's nickel dime compared to what Job went through. But I remember how that my wife had to remind me that it was nickel dime compared to Job went through so that I could do the same thing that Job did and not tempted to become discouraged. Well, what did Job do? Well, verse 20, Job arose and rent his mantle, shaved his head, fell down on the ground, and he worshipped God. And he said, Naked came out of my mother's womb, naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, Job didn't have any light. He didn't know that Satan did it. And this was not some sarcastic remark, you know, that was coming out like when he's saying here. Well, you could say it in this way, you know, like people, well, praise the Lord. It's not sarcastic or coming out in a wrong way like, well, Kesara, Sarah, whatever will be, will be. Well, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. No, he's literally worshiping God. He doesn't understand that God didn't do it, but he's saying, Oh, I just know that you've blessed and you've given for all of my life, and if you've chosen to withdraw it and take it away, then I still love you and I'm blessing your name. That's what he's saying. It was coming forth from the heart. Verse 22, in all this Job sinned not nor charged God foolishly. He never cursed God. He never railed. You know, most people when they get into a, into a negative situation like that, they will rail or curse. Some will actually say, why would a God of love ever do such a thing? And they'll charge God foolishly by saying, it was God's fault. There can't be a God in heaven like, well, I remember one man that lost his son in a, in a, in a car accident head on. And his son was in a drunken stupor. And after his son died, it was his only son, he charged God foolishly. He said, how could there be a God in the universe that would allow such a thing? How could there be a God of love? And others, you know, will use God's name in vain. Well, what do you think you're doing? What do you think is being done when people do that? They are cursing God. That's what they're doing. They're saying, God, you shouldn't have done that. It's an expression of anger. They're blaming God for what has happened. And in the same way, friends, we've got to watch it that we don't just clean up words and do the same thing with an expression of anger through some cleaned up word. Kick a tire or bang a fender or, you know, throw a pan. You know, you can throw a pan and say, praise the Lord, you've done the same thing. You've sinned foolishly with your lips. That's the point. Job did not. He worshiped God. Fall down your face and say, praise you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. That victory. Job's faith comes out, first of all, in the sense that he didn't curse God. 
and that he made this statement, blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord given, the Lord taketh away. Now secondly, the second stage of his trial was that of being physical. Now I don't know if you really appreciate the type of trial that Job went through physically. I brought a picture of a man with boils. I'd like to show it to you, just so that you know what a man looks like with boils. Brother, would you set that cup under there and turn that on? This is a picture that I got, not literally of a man, but out of a book. Now, that's what a man looks like with boils. So you can imagine it's bad enough losing everything physical, everything materially. Can you imagine that? And then having to lose even his own health almost to the place to whereby he wasn't alive. Of course, you see, this is, gives you a little more insight into what it said when his three friends come, around, come along. They looked up at him, they lifted up their eyes, and they knew him not. So they rent their mantle and they began to weep. They didn't know what he was looking like. Most people think Boyles was just maybe a bad case of the mumps. No, he's just hanging on by a thread. Just barely alive. Now that gives you some more insight then when you read into other passages like in Job chapter 19. Others will criticize his wife. They will say, well, what kind of wife is that? Because he, she said, you know, curse God and die. Maybe we ought to read that first. Job chapter 2. You can turn that off, brother. Job chapter 2. This is where his wife comes along and she says, verse 7, So Satan went forth from the presence of Job and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot unto his crown. And he took him potsherd, that's broken pottery, to scrape himself with all. And he sat down on the ashes. He was scraping that with pottery. Then said his wife unto him, Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Curse God and die. Now, people would think, you know, we're always led to believe that she was the most wicked woman. I don't believe that. I believe that here was a woman that you never hear her her complaining at all about when they lost everything material. But now her husband's stricken with something like this. She looks at her husband and just out of love, through weakness, she's already stumbled. She says, wouldn't it just be easier to give up your serving God and die? What kind of God can be like this that would allow would do something like this? And over in Job 19, verse 17, I believe his wife was a good woman, and yet this is where she just couldn't handle it. It was bad enough to lose everything material. Before anybody criticizes, dear friends, who'd want to go through something like that? You know what we're saying? Well, I'll tell you, I've heard people knock Job, and I'd be the last one to ever do that. Verse 17, My breath is repulsive to my wife, though I entreated for my children's sake. Not only was his breath, but he was repulsive. She wasn't saying, curse God and die, because I, I don't want to minister to you. I'm sick of you being around, you ugly, smelly thing or whatever. No, just by love, she just thought it would be a lot easier on him if he wasn't even around with was that type of disease. But you can see Job's faith coming out because here's what he says. Verse 10 of Job chapter 2. He said unto her, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God? And shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now look at that. You can read over that and miss that. He's saying there, shall we be immensely blessed at the hand of God and not be allowed to suffer? 
applying it to our own lives tonight. Shall we be immensely blessed by the Lord with everything that God has done for the past number of years you've been in the walk and not be allowed to maybe have to go through a trial or test and suffer occasionally? He said, you're a foolish woman to forget all that what God has done just because now he's withdrawn it. And he didn't understand anything that was going on. That's faith, friends. Great faith. More than what you realize. And then thirdly, we see the third measure of his trial was in that when his three friends came along, they continued right after him and he still never gave up the faith. Now his three friends, they were dealing with him the way that they did because from one side they were self-appointed men that were trying to back up God. Job was saying, in essence, I'm innocent. I've been struck and wrongly. They're trying to defend God by saying, no way. Who are you to say that you're more just than God? And they're trying to be his friend on the other hand by saying, look, if you'd repent, then all this would leave. And they came with him, came at him with great things to get him this way from his position and so on. For example, in Job 15.10, we are told that one of the things they said was, What knowest thou that we know not? And what understandest which is not in us? With us are both the gray-headed and the very aged men much elder than thy father. If you can imagine this, that means that all the men, the great aged men, had been discussing this matter. And these three friends were coming along and they were had all those individuals backing them that the curse causal shall not come. Job is sin. There's something wrong in his life. What he needs to do is repent. Think about that tonight, that you've gone through the type of thing where he has. And then pick out your most three closest friends in the body. And instead of coming over and comforting you and encouraging you, they come over to share with you that they believe through a vision or a dream, they know what your problem is. And not only are they themselves, did they get it by revelation, Elihu, or Eliphaz rather, he says he got it by spirit passing before him and all that. But they say the whole body is standing with us. The problem is you've sinned. And that's why you've lost everything. And yet you know in your heart you've been faithfully serving the Lord. The temptation would have been to give up the faith. But Job never gave up the faith. And you can find throughout the whole section of the book of Job where things keep coming out. Job kept growing and maturing and getting stronger in the faith. Like over in Job chapter 13 and verses 13 and 18. He didn't know what was going on. But he just kept pressing through. And he was maturing and growing. And his faith kept coming on the scene. Like statements like this are made. Job 13.15 Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. I will maintain mine own ways before him. Think about that. He said, though he were to even go one step farther and allow me to perish, I still would believe. He also shall be my salvation, for a hypocrite shall not come before him. Hear diligently my speech and my declaration with your ears. Behold, now I have ordered my cause, and I know that I shall be justified. That's faith. I know I shall be. And then over in Job chapter 19, verse 25. He says statements like this. Again, these three men are trying to talk him out of the faith. For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though my skin 
And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. And then over in Job 23, you see, as you read through the book, you find that his faith is just getting stronger and stronger because he is coming into a deeper understanding of what is going on. And then, of course, at the end, God shows him. Job 23.10 But he knoweth the way that I take, and when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. See, all that's beginning to point now to what's said in First Peter, that the trials of our faith are more precious than gold. And Job is a pioneer. He never had any of this before. He's learning this on his own. And finally, after he gets, of course, to the place where his friends have just provoked him, he begins to really start questioning God and raising questions about how come all this is happening. And, of course, God rebukes him. Well, then in chapter 42, Job says, Lord, I see. I should have stayed in my place, kept my mouth shut. Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou canst do anything and that no thought can be withholden from thee. Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered that I understood not. Things too wonderful for me, which I knew not. Here I beseech thee, and I will speak. I will demand of thee, and declare thou unto me. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye seeth thee. Wherefore I abhor myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. He comes to the place to where not only is he... Yes, he's complaining throughout this trial. He never gave up his faith, though. But he finally comes to the place where he says, I wish I'd never even complained. I don't understand it, but I trust you. That's the kind of faith that Job had. That I pray that you've understood by what we've said the type of faith that he had. You can't really appreciate it until you really think of the trial that he went through. But he did have a very strong faith and one that is a great example for us to follow. So the character of Job is one that he was righteous and perfect and upright. You may find a flaw here or there of his character. But don't take away from the main theme of the book, and that is that God pointed Job out as a perfect upright man that loved God and that even through testing and trial he would never do anything to fall from that position. He wouldn't change his love when outward circumstances changed. So therefore, his trial is centered around the character of Job rather than upon something that he did like fear. While we believe that fear, of course, will bring things on you, in the case of Job, that's not the, that's not the question that's here. Because the question is, why do the righteous suffer? So Job shows us the tremendous faith of one that could endure such trial. Starting next week, I want to begin to start showing you some of the things, some of the deeper things that Job learned through all this till God finally revealed to him what was said in chapters 1 and 2. So let's bow our heads. Father, we ask that you would take the word that was given tonight and use it to minister to every heart, to encourage every heart, to follow after the example of Job. And we pray that you would give us insight and deeper understanding into the book as we continue on in the weeks to come and pray that this insight would be expressed through us and would touch every heart to give us a firm, strong commitment 
to stand firm on the rock in time of testing and trial and to say with Job that we know that our Redeemer liveth and we shall be justified. We ask for that insight to every heart in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Lord bless.